Good morning. I'm Catherine Richard in for Angela Davis. You're listening to NPR News, and we're glad you can join us today. Here's a story I have heard a lot over the past few years. You have a family member that you just don't see eye to eye with. Maybe they didn't take COVID precautions very seriously and you disagreed. Maybe you really have have very different political beliefs, or maybe you just feel like they don't treat you with respect. For whatever reason, you may be wondering, should I even keep this person in my life? If you're going through this, you're not alone. About 27% of American adults say they've cut off contact with a family member. That's according to one study from Cornell University. This hour, we're talking about how to navigate difficult relationships with family and friends. I'm talking with two psychologists who specialize in, in, in estrangement. And we're going to dig into how to decide when to keep a relationship and when to step back. And I want to hear from you, too. Are you estranged from a family member or friend? What happened? Or have you recently repaired a relationship? And how did you make that decision? We know some of you may have navigated a divorce or breakup. And while that is one type of estrangement, today we're just focusing on platonic and familial familial relationships. The phone lines are open. You can call us at 651-227-6000. Or you can find me on Twitter at Cat Richard. That's C-A-T-R-I-C-H-E-R-T. I'd like to bring in our guests now. First, we have Joshua Coleman. He's a psychologist and a senior fellow with the Council on Contemporary Families. That's a nonpartisan organization that focuses on research about American families. He's also the author of Rules of Estrangement, Why Adult Children Cut Ties and How to Deal with the Conflict. He's joining us today from San Francisco. Hello, Joshua. Hello. Thanks for having me. We also have Lindsay Gibson. She's a clinical psychologist and the author of Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. She's joining us from Virginia Beach. Virginia, thanks for being with us, Lindsay. Oh, it's my pleasure, Kat. So just to start, I want to get some definitions going here. Josh, how do you define estrangement in your work? I define it as a um, complete or almost complete cutoff where one person um, doesn't want to be in contact with a friend or family member and the other person really does want to be in contact. So on the parent-adult-child side, um, maybe the parent uh, gets a yearly birthday greeting or whatever. Otherwise, there's absolutely no contact. I would still consider that an estrangement. Yeah, so it's not like, oh, we've just fallen out of touch, but, you know, every three years we pick up the phone and have a good conversation, right? Okay. And you've surveyed about 1,600 parents and grandparents who are estranged from their children or grandchildren. What were some of those common themes and ideas you heard? Well, I think the importance of the study and of my clinical work shows that people often don't, parents don't often talk about estrangement because they worry people are going to assume that the parent did something really terrible to cause it. And in fact, that is one pathway to estrangement. Parents who were, um, you know, emotionally abusive, as Wendy's going to talk about, or physically abusive, or neglectful. But that's only one pathway. Other pathways are when the adult child gets married and the husband or wife says, choose them or me. You can't have both. Um, Certainly mental illness in the parent can be a cause or addiction, but also mental illness or addictions in the adult child. Uh, divorce is a really common pathway. Seventy percent of the uh, parents who are estranged in my practice have had a divorce from the other biological parent. Uh, therapy and therapists can be a cause of 
a therapist saying misdiagnosing the parent with a problem and encouraging the supporting and estrangement. And finally, in um, you know, we've been doing a very active, intensive uh, form of parenting over the past three or four decades, and a certain percentage of adult children don't know any other way to feel separate from the parent than to estrange the parent because they feel so enmeshed with them. So I would say that those are the most common pathways to estrangement. So, Lindsay, you mostly work with adult children who have difficult relationships with their parents or may be estranged from their parents. What do you commonly hear from people? Yes, I, I just want to thank Joshua for that very comprehensive overview because that, <laughs> that was very, very helpful and captures a lot of what I've seen in my clinical practice. Um, it, yeah, it's interesting that uh, when people come to see me and I identify uh, a pattern of emotional immaturity, usually in the people around them, uh, it's usually really something like they would like to be estranged, um, but they haven't taken that step yet. And they may never take that step. But mm-hmm. the people that come into me for psychotherapy are caught in this uh, kind of no man's land between really not enjoying spending time with the family member, actively disliking the family member, and then being really victimized by the family member, by emotional uh, abuse or other kinds of uh, disrespect. Yet they don't feel like they have the right to even stand up to them or to declare their own boundaries. Instead, they feel like they've got to take care of that parent or that family member. They've got to keep the waters smooth and they have to really disconnect from themselves in order to have a relationship with that person. So you can imagine the amount of um, conflict and anguish that causes a person who really has to essentially suppress their whole individuality in order to have a relationship or a family bond with this other person. You know, I want to get to Allie in Duluth. She's on the line. Allie, what's been your situation with your mother? So my mother kicked me out when I was 18, and I ended up living with my father, but she was emotionally abusive, and she cut contact with me, and for years I tried to keep the relationship going. I tried to make this bond with my mother because I felt like I had to because, you know, she's my mom, and then... Years later, I realized that she would never take accountability for what she had done and the hurt that she had caused me. And I haven't spoken to her in like three years now. Hmm. I'm so sorry. I mean, I'm sure that you have a lot of complicated feelings about that. How have you navigated those feelings, Allie? Lots and lots of therapy. And thankfully, I've had a very supportive partner. And my older sister also experienced the pain from my mother. So we were able to rely on each other for support. So, Lindsay, I mean, how do you, you know, when you hear Allie's story, does that resonate with the work that you do in the the, the clients you have? Oh, completely, completely. And Allie, my heart goes out to you. Um, I was struck by how you said, she's my mom, because that is the, the cry from the heart that I hear from just about all the people I work with. It's that you have your own reactions, you, you want respect, you find it difficult to be with the person, 
but it's like, she's my mom. And that cultural assumption that a person's role toward you or their place in your life as a physical fact, that that is in fact your biological mother, we have all these cultural assumptions. All parents love their children. Uh, parents would do anything for their children. All these tropes that um, we accept as a society as being fact. And we really have to be proven. It has to be proven to us that that's not a fact before we'll take somebody's word for it. Those, um, those kinds of, um, I guess, pressures uh, emotionally that we feel about continuing to be the child of a parent who has treated us badly causes so much conflict and pain. And so I always ask people, what if you considered your rights as a person, uh, as an individual, and what if you took a stand toward this person, not as your mother, but just as another human being, as another individual? Uh, that begins to break loose some of that those cultural assumptions and that that guilt and shame about not wanting to be around your parent. Mm. But I really understand the conflicts that people feel when they do stand up and individuate from that parent, because these family bonds are, is a that's a completely separate thing from a real relationship. That's that's almost an organic kind of feeling that you have towards someone you've grown up with. So it's an ongoing process, but um, I salute you, Allie, in your decision to give yourself some breathing room in which you can individuate and become more of your own person. Sometimes we need the space from our parents in order to do that. And I really hope that whatever you decide in the future it's going to be something that is for your good and for your rights as an individual human being to select who you want to spend time with. If you're listening, we want you to join our conversation. We're talking with two guests who study and write about estrangement between family members and friends. We want to hear your experience. Are, are you estranged from a family member or friend? Are you thinking about cutting ties with someone in your life? You can join our conversation at 651-227-6000 or find me on Twitter at Kat Richert. That's C-A-T-R-I-C-H-E-R-T. Next, I want to take a call from Robbie in Minneapolis. Robbie, tell us about your uh, relationship with your daughter. Um, we were estranged for 20 years after an extremely acrimonious divorce. Um, we were new to this city. We didn't have any family members that would have provided some support uh, for both sides for her. Um, at this point, I'm looking back, and I know that she was most heavily influenced by her mother and her grandmother. And she chose, basically, to cut me off as her dad. Um, I waited. I wrote her. Uh, we had a few very terse conversations, mostly via email. Um, but after 20 years, me sending Christmas cards or sending birthday cards, occasionally taking her out for a meal if she was in town, which were very uncomfortable, she mm -hmm. called me. And it was in January, three years ago. And she said, 
I'd like to see if we could have a cordial relationship. And I asked her what that meant. And she said, well, we can sit down and talk to each other and see where it goes. So I took that and ran with it. And we had a series of pretty uncomfortable conversations for the course of the first six months. And then it started to smooth out. And now it's been three years. It's been a one-way relationship. I mean, if I call her, I write, she'll respond. But I don't know anything about her. Um, Mm. I don't know who she turned out to be. And frankly, um, I would encourage people to maintain contact, but I'm still in the midst of it. My hope is that at some point we can have a conversation about who she is as a human being. Because Mm. frankly, that's what I want to know. Who is she? Who did she turn out to be? Robbie, thanks so much for sharing that with us. Um, Joshua, I'm wondering if if that story reflects some of the stories you've heard in your own research and, and how you might advise Robbie to go forward here. Yeah, it absolutely does, Robbie. I'm sorry you experienced a 20-year estrangement, but I'm happy that it's on some kind of a pathway towards reconciliation. Yeah, there's a number of things to highlight there. One is a, a very recent study found that um, some 27% of fathers are estranged uh, from children, and they're much more likely to be estranged from uh, daughters than sons, and I see that a lot in my practice. Divorce can be a common pathway to estrangement, one, because um, the other parent may poison the child against the other parent, what we call parental alienation. Uh, Secondly, the child may independently decide that one parent's more to blame for breaking up the family, and that may cause the estrangement. Um, divorce and remarriage can bring in new people that compete with the child, young or old, for emotional and financial resources. Finally, in a highly individualistic culture like ours, it can cause the adult child to see the parents more as individuals with their own kind of strengths and weaknesses and less as a family unit that they're a part of. So in some ways, this this um, kind of goes back to the, the earlier caller who talked about the parent not having accountability. Um, I think that, that reconciliation typically has to happen with the parent for some of the reasons that Wendy was describing, um, That and, and often it's hard for parents to do because they don't, often don't understand the reasons, either because culturally they were raised at a, a time or in a culture where honor my mother and my father, respect my elders, was still very much the dominant ideology. Um, or they just, their ideas of what constitutes emotional abuse, which is such a common thing that younger adults are accusing their parents of, rightly or wrongly, I would say, uh, makes it harder for the parent to empathize. But either way, most of the estrangements that happen between parents and adult children are initiated by the adult child. And so it's really incumbent on parents to take the lead if they want a reconciliation, A. B, um, I do believe that the buck stops with parents and that parents should be the ones taking the high road. And it often is a one-way uh, a, a street for a long-time lobby because there's often a lot of repair to do um, and there's often a lot of empathy that you have to develop and understanding for your child. And hopefully over time, she'll be able to have that for you as well. That's certainly my plea and my hope, but I think it has to start with the parent. So, Josh, I'm wondering, have you found that estrangement is more common today than it used to be? And what do you think are the reasons behind that, if so? 
Oh, it absolutely is. Yes. I mean, I'm seeing it in my practice. I mean, just to to your earlier point, something like a third of people are strange today just on the basis of political differences. We've become much more tribal. Um, you know, the 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 um, moral framework that kept families together for millennia, honor thy mother and thy father, respect thy elders, families forever, however problematic that was, uh, I think it made estrangement far less likely. Um, the, the role of psychology, people looking at their childhoods, um, mental health, the preservation of mental health, the preservation of you know, personal well-being, uh, an orientation towards growth and happiness, uh, have really become the dominant uh, moral framework today that, that just helps people decide whether or not to keep or reject family members. You know, the British sociologist Anthony Giddens talks about the way that we become disembedded from the institutions that guided family life for millennia over the course of modernity. So we've gone from role to self, and today we have the pure relationship. It's purely constituted on the basis of whether or not the relationship is aligned with our ideals for happiness and growth. And so the idea of relationships based on duty or responsibility or obligation, however problematic those were, have largely gone out the window. And you kind of alluded to this just a minute ago, but I mean, what about the pandemic? What about this political upheaval and, and this racial reckoning we've been living through? Do you think that sort of contributed to relationships that maybe had been strained sort of finally, you know, that's sort of the final blow? Oh, I'm sorry. Was that a question for me or for Wendy? Yes, it was, Josh. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. It was for me? Okay, sorry. Um yeah, absolutely. I think we're all just much more fragile. We're much more on edge. Uh, the political differences are just exacerbating these things. We we used to, you know, have the idea that you just don't talk about sex, politics, or religion as much in mixed company or if they're potentially controversial. Now they become these big kind of form of value signaling and identity markers. Um, and if somebody's on the opposite side of the party, we make all these attributions of who they are that we, you know, have the wisdom to, to not do in the past. And we also have rising rates of mental illness in the U.S. People are much more anxious and much more depressed, particularly younger generations. So people are very, you know, keen to not feel any worse than they already feel. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, you know, I applaud the discussion about boundaries and setting limits and that kind of thing, and there's an absolute place for it. But, but I feel like we've lost sort of our sense of, obligation and responsibility and caretaking and compassion for other people, including family members. And I'm not including you in that, Wendy, because I think your description was very compassionate. Um, But I think a lot of therapists aren't as mindful as what what Wendy is describing and often are too quick to embrace the whole no-contact estrangement uh, perspective in ways that I think is really harmful and destructive. Yeah. Next, I'd like to take a call from Ashley in Minneapolis. Ashley, you've been estranged from your mother for about a decade. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, it was um, the day after Christmas in 2014, I believe. So tell us, Ashley, how did that happen? What what precipitated that? Um, So my mother was emotionally abusive, verbally abusive, um, sometimes physically abusive, And, you know, I kind of grew up my whole life uh, just trying and trying and trying to fix my own attachment issues and to get my mother to be the mother figure that I really wanted. And I just had um, I was living far away from home. And on Christmas Eve, there was a giant blizzard and I didn't feel safe driving the four hours home. And 
you know, she had basically shamed me for the last time about that and was very upset with me and called me a bunch of names. And it wasn't, I didn't decide that day I was going to be no contact forever, but I had blocked her on all these things. Um, and I had actively been in therapy since I was 18. I think I was 24 at the, at this point. And um, it just, you know, I continued to work with that in therapy and it just became a decision that I made and kind of like, you know, being in recovery, I decided today I'm not going to talk to her tomorrow. Maybe I will. But now after 10 years, um, I can say with confidence, although I struggled greatly with whether or not I should rekindle or try to rekindle that relationship when I was younger, um, it was probably one of the best and healthiest decisions I have made in my adult life. Lindsay, I'd love to get your reaction to Ashley's story and specifically, you know, Ashley's mention of physical abuse. You know, I think sometimes it's hard for people to maybe know when to break. But do you would you say physical abuse is maybe one of those um, bright red flags that, you know, is sort of clear cut in your view? Yes, absolutely. Um, Any interaction or contact with a person um, who really is bad for you. I mean, you can have physical abuse, you can have um, financial abuse, you can have all different kinds of abuse, but it's basically someone who deteriorates your ability to function. Um, For instance, you might have uh, an important transition that you're going through in your life, such as having a new baby, starting a new job, buying a new house, whatever, and then the parent insists on wanting to come into that experience um, because they want to be a part of it or whatever their reasons are. And that can be very deleterious to the person going through it because you can imagine, um, as our caller is, is describing her mother, what that would be like to have a self-centered person with very low empathy and low respect interfacing with you during those times of, of transition. It can actually be very bad for your physical health because of the amount of stress. So yes, I absolutely would say that. I, I wanted to add too that uh, our caller is is bringing in an issue that I think is very important to tie in here along with all the cultural developments and the changing attitudes toward family and personal identity. And that is that over the past few decades, uh, there's been an explosion of awareness about human rights. And what human rights addresses is the importance of the individual and the individual's inner experience what it's like for them when they're treated in various ways. And we have, um, we have defined this uh, in terms of our human rights approach. And we have accepted that people's psychological experiences are huge. They're paramount in a person's well-being and mental health. So, yes, there's the thing about we don't have some of these institutions and assumptions about family life to fall back on. And in some ways that deprives us of a sense of support that we could have. But on the other hand, it's like, yay, because so many emotionally immature parents and family members really trample on their children's mental health, self-respect, and human rights. Um, 
They particularly are uh, disrespectful of the child's journey to become an individual. And this is not just some new age um, value that I'm talking about here. I'm talking about people who do not individuate psychologically, who don't find their individuality. They do not function as well, and their relationships are not as uh, mature and rewarding. Their success socially and in jobs is often affected by that. So it's not a it's not a just a nice thing to have that support for your individuality is going to affect every area of your life in adulthood if you've had a parent like that. Yeah. So Gabe in Woodbury has patiently been waiting on the line. Gabe, um, what has been your situation with your mother? Um, well, a couple of years ago when I came out as trans to her. Um, she refused to acknowledge my identity. And um, after a while, she, she, wound, she and my stepfather wound up moving a state, and I, and I cut them off. And it, it's a little bit easier to cut someone off when they live across the country from you. Um, <clears throat> but... Uh, I, Recently, actually, uh, my father, who was supportive of me, he he passed away in November, and um, that was uh, the first time I actually heard from my mother in so long. Um, is she called me to say that she was sorry that my my dad died, and I talked to her for about two minutes, and um, haven't spoken to her since. Gabriel, thanks for sharing that story with us. You know, Joshua, I'm wondering how. Do you advise people who are um, considering cutting parents off or, or other close family members off when it really comes down to a matter of, you know, not respecting their identity? So, you know, I think Gabriel's example is a good one. You're a queer or trans person. Your family is rejecting you, which can be incredibly painful. How do you recommend people deal with that? Well, I think that you should start with compassion, that if you're a trans person and you're announcing um, that to your parent. I, I don't think it's fair to a parent to immediately assume that they're transphobic and beyond redemption or education if they have anxiety about it, particularly if you're talking about any kind of top surgery or go having uh, hormones and the like. And I think there's too much support for, for people um, cutting off parents who just have anxiety about these procedures and it's a it's a, a big ask of a parent so i think we could be supportive of the trans community but also be supportive of the parents who are being asked to accept something about their child's identity that's completely at odds with their knowledge rightly or wrongly of who that person um, is and this sort of gets back to but well let me finish that thought but i do think that parents have to particularly for an adult child accept and embrace that person's identity because they get to decide who they are and the parent, you know, they may not say that they want calling that person by a different pronoun than they, you know, believe them to be or a different name. But once somebody's an adult, it's really up to them. And a lot of estrangements could be reconciled or healed if the parent were to just embrace it and manage their feelings separate from that. But I also would ask the trans community and other people who are making these kind of announcements to have compassion for the parents and and educate them um, about 
what what an ask that that can be. Um, but I want to circle back to to Wendy's comment about the human rights of of adult children to cut off parents or to to limit. And, and I think this conversation is sort of going the way that these conversations often go in this space, which is abusive parents. And yes, I, I agree with you, Wendy, that if a parent is abjectly neglectful or abusive or won't be supportive of you know, or is engaging with the parent, with the adult child in an ongoing, humiliating, shaming, rejecting way, whether it's around their religion, their gender identity, et cetera, their sexuality. It is very hard for any reasonable therapist to endorse continuing that, that person to be in contact with them. Um, but this notion of rights, I think, is very misguided in our culture. And we live in a highly individualistic culture where we prize individual rights. And the problem is, Yes, there are emotionally immature parents. There's also emotionally immature adult children who are very abusive to their parents, very rejecting of perfectly good parents, mislabeling uh, normative slings and arrows of childhood as, as trauma. And so, um, so I think we have to be careful as a society when we're saying that estrangement is a natural, positive, healthy pathway uh, to manage relationships. The other thing we have to be thinking about uh, in terms of rights is the rights of the parent, you know, particularly a parent like somebody in my practice who are willing to empathize, who are willing to show compassion, who are willing to take responsibility and repair, and the adult child. These are adult, these are children who weren't physically abused or molested or neglected. The parent is willing to do it. And the parent's life is completely immiserated by the adult child cutting off contact. Not only that, but often these are very loving, dedicated grandparents. And the adult child in cutting off contact with the parent is also cutting off access to the grandchildren. So I just think it's important in all these discussions that we be thinking not only about the rights of the adult child, um, but also about the rights of the parents and the consequences of that. Because typically in a strange, but also isn't just dyadic or triadic. It's not typically just between that parent and the adult child. It often fractures families significantly, grandparents and grandchildren, siblings, cousins, etc. So we just have to be very careful when we're recommending it as an option. Lindsay, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that and also to Gabriel's um, particular situation. What's your take on that? Yes. Um, first, I just want to uh, clarify to the listeners today that my first name is Lindsay, uh, because if they go looking for Wendy Gibson, they're not going to find me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank okay. you for doing that. Yeah, sure. Um, okay. So, um, first of all, uh, I would just want to clarify, too, that it's really, in some ways, at least this is the way it seems to me in working with my clients, that it's it's really an unfair fight, so to speak, with the parent. Um, my experience with my clients has been that that parent holds enormous emotional power um, over the child. The child is still very emotionally dependent on the parent. Um, they don't want to estrange. My experience has not been that people have at all been quick to seek estrangement or cut their parents off. Quite the opposite. Uh, they're hanging in there, um, suffering, having their parents uh, treat their grandchildren in ways that they don't approve of, scared to raise their voice to, I'm sorry, to, um, uh, you know, step in on the parent and set some boundaries. So my 
clinical experience has probably been a little different from Joshua's because the people that come to see me are really struggling with this. And I don't espouse estrangement because, I mean, as, as a first line, um, I don't think people are doing this, um, you know, easily or uh, quickly. I think that they're struggling to find some way to live either with this person or without this person so that their self-esteem and their self-individuality um, can be preserved. So it's, it's kind of like if a, a person were to come into my office and say, I'm going to cut my parent off, I need help with that. Um, I would, of course, want to know all about that. But we would also very much talk about what the costs of that might be. But I don't feel that a parent has a right to be in somebody's life or be in their children's life if they're not willing to respect and um, treat that person as an individual with their own way of looking at things. Um, so I, I just just want to reiterate that that I would very much encourage that person to build their strength, build their individuality by communicating with that parent, by trying to work things out, by asking for relationship repair. I always do that because if somebody just cuts somebody off and moves across the country or something like that, um, you don't grow from that and you don't mature from that. You pretty much stay about where you are because you haven't address this huge thing in your life. Yeah. So I, I just want to, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. We just have so many callers on the line and I want to make okay. sure that we, okay. we get to all them. But I think what we're talking about is really interesting and I want to stay here for a minute. Brittany wrote in on Twitter earlier, more people should be doing it and in, in it meaning estrangement. We are not beholden to those who do not have our best interests at heart. So often we don't think of emotional abusers as abusers, especially in a familial setting. And this sort of reminded me of an article I was reading um, in preparation for this interview in The Atlantic. Uh, it was written last summer by Caitlin Tiffany, and it was called, That's It, You're Dead to Me, Suddenly Everyone is Toxic. And her point was that in this age where cancel culture abounds, and there's sort of this endless advice on social media about cutting toxic people off. I hate to use the word trendy, but, you know, it it feels like something that's sort of in the zeitgeist right now. And, and I'm wondering, you know, I think we all have complicated relationships that can be stressful but are also valuable in other ways. And I'm trying to figure out if there's a middle ground here where you can sort of accept those, you know, toxic things about a parent or a child, but also learn to value um, the things that are important and maybe set boundaries that allow you to stay in that relationship. So, Lindsay, is there this middle ground here that you might advise some of your clients on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's really the optimal solution where you keep the family bond because that's important to you. These are people that you have grown up with. That, you know, you'll never have another relationship like that in your life. Um, so yes, that would be optimal if you could stay in the relationship with clear boundaries and the ability to communicate 
what you want and don't want, and also to stay in touch with yourself, to stay connected with yourself when you're in that relationship, instead of making it all about the parent or the family member. That would be ideal. The problem is that sometimes people really need more space to work on their individuation. But, you know, in my heart of hearts, unless the parent has been very abusive, very damaging, um, I am always delighted when people want to move back toward the relationship with good boundaries in place. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's a big decision to cut out, um, particularly a family member, you know, <laughs> so, so finding finding ways to be able to, to manage that, I think is important first. So we all have, um, we have Sean in Minneapolis, who's been waiting on the line. Sean, what's your situation with your son? Yeah, so I um, got divorced when my twin boys were quite young. And for the first four or five years, I really, I'm kind of single parented them. that Rob would show up, you know, at, on weekends and was very part of their life. But day to day, I was really in their world because they were just arrangements in the apartment versus the big house, all that stuff that happens. So flash forward, you know, we've come together. We're doing a pretty good job of kind of migrating, raising the boys. Um, one of my sons, we, we um, both had an idea that could be, could be gay, and we were just supporting him the best we could and giving him space to be who he wants to be and allow, allow him to come out when he was ready. Um, they excelled. They got through high school, college, did very well, went on to law school. During the high school years, um, my son really started pushing back on me. And I, I know that I was emotionally trying to cling to them because they were really my only family. Um, and I probably overreacted. I probably tried too hard. Um, but over the years, he's really pushed me away. And I've only really seen him one time a year. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I try to be very flexible and open. I mean, he's even said to me his new stepmom is the only mom he needs, you know, things like that. And I'm like, you know, that's obviously not very kind. So long story short, this past year, we've had kind of a crisis with his twin brother. And during this time of this, he's reached out to me. And in this moment of kind of concern and fear about his brother, he shared with me that, you know, he, he's really been so appreciative that he's when he shows up in my life that I've been able to be so open and loving and just wanting to know what everything about him and trying to absorb as much as I can in this really short window. And he doesn't know how I've been able to manifest that. And that he do, does know that I tried the best I could. He no, does know a lot of his anger is something he has to deal with, with his father that he hasn't been able to deal with yet. I was so excited for this conversation and he has gone radio silent. I mean like nothing now. And, you know, I've reached out when, you know, that court decision about directifying, you know, gay marriage. I let him know that I was really happy for him. I hope that that puts some, you know, relief in his, in, in his life. You know, no, no um, word. He graduated from law school. I didn't go to that. I just said to him, I was really proud of him. No word. And so I sit here in the space of knowing a little bit more about what he's thinking and going on. But it's even harder now because. You know, he kind of gave me that insight, if that makes sense. It was a little easier to think he was angry at me. Yeah, Sean, thank you for sharing that story with us. Um, Josh, I'm wondering what advice you have for people who are the person who's been cut off. How do you advise them on how to manage when someone has stopped talking to you or talks to you very infrequently? 
Sure. Um, and I couldn't really understand Sean's um, question or point, so it'll have to be just more more to that to that question, Stephen. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think the the first thing is to respond with empathy and curiosity and assume that there's a kernel, if not a bushel of truth in that person's complaints or desires to cut out contact. What I always advise parents to say is, I know you wouldn't do this unless you felt like it was the healthiest thing for you to do, because I think to Lindsay's point earlier, that's what the adult child is doing, you know, when they are cutting off contact. The parent may not believe it, that it's the healthiest thing for them to do. Um, but from the adult child's perspective, it is. So they have to approach that person with empathy and responsibility taking and uh, being willing to do a deep dive. You know, in AA, they talk about the eighth step, which is a fearless moral inventory of your own character flaws. And we've all got them, particularly as parents. Uh, our adult children do as well. But, but if the parent is trying to have a reconciliation they have to come from the perspective of really understanding and showing empathy and taking responsibility and not defending and not explaining and not saying I did the best that I could, even though that's, that's absolutely true. Um, and one of the things that's confusing for parents is that so many parents today are being accused of emotionally abusing or neglecting their, their children when they were younger. Um, and there was an important study by the psychologist Nick Haslam in Australia who talks about mm. the notion of concept creep. And he found that over the past three decades, we've enormously expanded what we believe to be considered emotional abuse, harmful behavior, traumatizing or neglectful behavior. And so often there's a very different conversation that's happening between younger generations and older generations where the older generations feel like emotional abuse, you had the best childhood ever. I was abused. You weren't abused. Right. It's a really different definition. Yeah. Um, We are. No, that's okay. I think that's an important point, right? With the way we, the way we define trauma has really changed and and kind of recently too. Um, Absolutely. So we are, we are getting toward the end of our show. And again, we still have a lot of callers on the line. I'm trying to get to as many as possible. We have Josh in Beloit, Wisconsin, who has a really uh, interesting situation. Josh, you're a foster parent, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. And hello, everyone. Um, from Minneapolis, but living in southern Wisconsin for the last 15 years. Um, but my wife and I are foster parents. And so related to this issue of uh, intergenerational trauma, um, as foster parents, and now we're newly adoptive parents, um, we are maintaining connections with our child's uh, birth family. Um, and we also, you know, if you can think of fostering or, or removal as sort of a forced estrangement, that's how I kind of see the connection with the conversation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of interventions that, are, that happen when um, an investigation shows evidence of neglect or trauma or abuse to try to interrupt that because it's so important to a child's development, especially early in life, these adverse um, childhood experiences. And I'm wondering what we can learn from those types of interventions that try to um, sort of catch the situation early on um, as far as um, both what might be able to help um, parents who, you know, the baby comes without a, a set of instructions and we're all learning right. and we draw on our own experiences and our own traumas. And then also, um, you know, helping older aging children um, kind of reconnect or, or kind of bridge the divide with their birth parents. Sure. Thank you. Sure. Lindsay, I'd love for you to respond to that. How would you um, advise Josh? Yeah, you know, so much of, of 
what Josh would be facing as a foster parent who might, uh, if I understood correctly, who might be interested in how to help the children deal with this forced estrangement from their birth parents. Um, yeah, the, I think it's important to take the lead from the child about what they're curious about, what their feelings are, um, what their fantasies are about uh, the family that they or the parent that they had come from, so that you can be there as a witness. Um, there's, I think, tremendous positive impact from having someone who just listens and is a witness to what our experience is. And it sounds like you are a person who would do that with a child. All the effects of abuse and neglect that a child comes into a new family with are carried around inside of them or they're acted out. And so for a foster parent or an adoptive parent like yourself to recognize the intergenerational nature of trauma and how things get handed down unconsciously and to be there for that child um, and to facilitate whatever's going to be best for that child's development is huge. I salute you. You know, we've got a few more comments coming in um, from uh, people in the Twin Cities. Julie called in to say that her children are in their 20s. They don't want to spend time with their dad, but they feel guilty. How can they deal with that guilt? Uh, you know, I'm wondering, Lindsay, if you have any advice there. Um, you know, it sounds like the kids aren't especially interested in being in their dad's life, but um, feel like they have no other choice. Yes. And so the child might... Um, out of guilt, agree to spend time with the father, um, uh, sort of be there for him. And now we have the parentification of the child. We have a reversal of roles. Instead of the parent being concerned about how the kid's doing in that situation, the child is now concerned about how the parent's doing in that situation. It's very common. So the role of the the par- the other parent in this situation the the mother is to talk not let me reverse that listen sure. <laughs> <laughs> listen to the children about their conflicts between the guilt and the loyalty because the loyalty I, I know Joshua will agree with this the loyalty is is a a fine important part of their character development and to understand that you can be so torn and to understand why you are deciding to keep contact or not is something that helps that child develop their own moral character, but not at the expense of their own psychological health. That's what that parent is there for, to help the child see all the ramifications of whichever decision they make. Yeah. I hate to say it, but our time is up for the day. I want to thank our guests. Joshua Coleman is a psychologist who wrote the book Rules of Estrangement, Why Adult Children Cut Ties and How to Heal the Conflict. Lindsay Gibson is a clinical psychologist and the author of Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. This conversation was produced by Samantha Matsumoto. Be safe, everyone. We'll be back tomorrow at 9 a.m. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.